Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our video cast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hey, I'm Andrew Weaver. I'm currently one of the CA3 residents here at the University of Kentucky. Today we'll be talking about intraoperative hypertension, its possible causes, and potential treatments. So first, we'll briefly discuss what constitutes the goals of intraoperative blood pressure management. So really, there's no consensus regarding specific blood pressure target values, but in most patients, we attempt to maintain the blood pressure within 20% of that patient's baseline. And keep the mean, or the map as I'll refer to it from here on out, above 65 rather than targeting a specific blood pressure value. So kind of just within 20% of their baseline, but definitively over 65, a map of over 65. So, but these patients that come to us pretty routinely here at Kentucky and probably some of y'all's institutes, if y'all are listening from elsewhere, they come in with chronic hypertension. So we'll want to target a map of above 65 because a map of 65 may be too low. So typically kind of like I mentioned beforehand, just keep their map within 20% of their baseline. And so this is going to help alleviate higher incidences of acute kidney injury, myocardial injury, or maybe even possibly neurological insult if we were to keep their map too high from their baseline or too low. And so first we'll go over some potential causes of intraoperative hypertension, and then we'll kind of break one each down into a little bit more detail. So firstly, inadequate anesthesia or response to intubation or some very common cause of hypertension initially. Inadequate analgesia, chronic hypertension, so, and then hypoxemia, hypercarbia, hypervolemia, bladder distension, iatrogenic, or maybe even the recent use of illicit drugs such as cocaine or amphetamines, or maybe even some rare causes that the patient may have an undiagnosed pheochromocytoma that we're having to deal with intraoperatively. So that's just kind of a <clears throat> quick little overview of some of the things that could be causes for hypertension, and just kind of will break those down a little bit further and then go about treating those as well. So with inadequate anesthesia, or the response to intubation initially. And so this can cause an acute rise quite significantly, secondary to sympathetic activation. And if these patients have chronic hypertension or have, and you can, this response can be quite more severe than in patients that are normal tensive at baseline. <clears throat> uh, inadequate anesthetic depth during painful surgical stimulation can also lead to marked increases in blood pressure. And this is once again by just stimulating our sympathetic system. Uh, and with few exceptions, most oral antihypertensive medicines should be continued up to the time of surgery due to the fact that abruptly discontinuing some of these medicines may cause significant rebound hypertension. 
some examples of medicines that we don't that we do typically hold are routinely we routinely hold ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, usually for a period of 24 hours prior to surgery. And these drugs can theoretically blunt the compensatory activation of the renin-angiotensin system during surgery. So we have this prolonged hypotension that's difficult to treat intraoperatively. So that's kind of why we hold those preoperative-wise. And there's been multiple studies showing the incidence of hypotension was significantly lower in patients that stopped their ACE or ARB preoperatively. Hypervolemia. It sometimes can be difficult to assess in some patients, especially when they're covered with drapes and you can't necessarily look at their extremities or assess for edema. So kind of go over some ways to assess that. So if you were using an arterial line or if you had a um, flow track hooked up, uh, you could assess their pulse pressure variation. And, or if, if for some reason you're really concerned about it, you could place the intraoperative transesophageal echo to assess their left ventricular cavity. So, and then one other, other clue that we could typically look at. So if this patient takes chronic diuretics and in your preoperative evaluation before surgery, you notice that they missed their most recent dose, that could tip them over the edge and they could be hypervolemic lead, leading to intraoperative hypertension. Uh, next, hypoxemia and hypercarbia can both cause hypertension due to sympathetic stimulation as well. Uh, bladder distension, you can have a kink catheter to where this isn't, where it's not draining properly. Or for some reason, the case was thought to be a shorter duration originally that kind of went over the time frame. They could just build up of urine in their bladder and cause them distension. Uh, atrogenic, so possibly, you know, we we always have our medications labeled and whatnot, but always could be an error where we inappropriately gave a vasopressor leading to some hypertension. So <clears throat> now we'll briefly go over some uh, potential treatments, and then these are going to be centered around temporizing the situation with fast onset, short-acting drugs, and then treating the underlying cause above all else. So that's the main thing we're going to want to do is initially is find out what's causing the hypertension so we can treat it accordingly. So a lot of the sympathetic responses due to the tracheal intubation, I mean, we can treat it with short-acting beta blockers like Esmolol to blunt this response before we induce. We can give that with our induction medicines. Or also, you can give a lidocaine, some fentanyl, and just give that an appropriate duration uh, set up before you place the endotracheal tube. Uh, if for some reason the patient in the middle of the case gets too light anesthetized, you can consider bolusing some propofol, maybe increasing the volatile anesthetic if that's how you're maintaining the case, or if you're using a TIVA, you can, after you bolus the propofol, just go up on your rate, or whatever intravenous agent you're deciding to choose. And so, and another point is if you're increasing the volatile, you may want to increase your flows as well up through the oxygen or air or whatnot, because if you just, if you're going low flows or whatnot and just increase the volatile, that may take a while for that effect to take, 
to, for the patient to get the benefit of the effect. And so, and then also if pain is thought to be the culprit, you know, boluses of fentanyl, rapid onset, or, and then after your fentanyl, you may want to go with, back in that with a little bit more longer acting medicines like Dilaudid or morphine. So just for additional analgesic benefit. And then, you know, if, like I mentioned earlier, there's possible causes of hypoxemia and hypercarbia. You know, you can always draw blood gases if you have an arterial line or if you're able to get a ABG, just single stick, then you could send those off to assess for hypoxemia or hypercarbia. If they're hypervolemic, you kind of might be a little bit more difficult to assess, but if they had missed their preoperative diuretic dose, you know, if kind of went through your logarithm, assess these other causes of hypertension, then maybe a low dose bolus of Lasix or whatever medications you have there available to you. And then if they, you know, if they placed a catheter at the beginning of the case and you've gone a couple hours without having really any urine output or whatnot, you may want to just follow up that catheter, make sure it's not kinked or whatnot, because that could also be a cause of hypertension so now we're going to go briefly cover some specific antihypertensive agents that can be used intraoperatively and so kind of not necessarily like targeting like pain this is going to be more like our beta blockers calcium channel blockers we can use or maybe even some direct vasodilators like hydralazine nitroglycerin so you know if our hypertension's been unresponsive to adjusting the depth of anesthesia or treating it with um, uh, opioids, then these are some just specific antihypertensive agents that we can use. So beta blockers. So hypertension associated with the increased heart rate can be treated with bolus doses of labetalol, 5 to 20 milligrams, you know, kind of as I've learned the past three years, typically it's a little bit safer to start with the smaller end of the spectrum of doses and then you can kind of gradually work your way up. You can always give more medication. It's kind of hard to take it back sometimes. But So labetalol and then esmolol as well. And then, you know, if you want something even longer acting, maybe some metoprolol as well. And so, And all three of these medications allow for intraoperative redosing. So labetalol specifically is a non-selective block, blockade for beta adrenergic receptors and selective for alpha-1 receptors as well. So it hits all the beta receptors and just specifically the alpha-1 receptors to help control hypertension. Esmolol, it's on the other hand, is a very selective beta-1 blocker that has a rapid onset and short duration of action. And uh, it's a common board question. It's metabolized by your plasma esterases as well. So one of the reasons why it has a short duration of action. So that's kind of the beta blockers. Uh, so some calcium channel blockers that we use intraoperatively. And so these inhibit the calcium influx to provide selective arteriolar smooth muscle relaxation commonly used to treat increased blood pressure due to increased systemic vascular resistance. So two of the common ones we use here are nicardipine or cardine and then clovidipine as well. 
So nicardipine, it can be administered by either an IV bolus or a continuous infusion. Uh, IV bolus usually 100 to 500 mics in increments, and then usually you can start the infusion at two and a half to five, kind of whatever you deem appropriate for the situation you're in. And clavidipine, so it is a short-acting IV calcium channel blocker that is rapidly metabolized by plasma esterases as well. And it can only be administered by continuous infusion. And it goes from one milligram per hour all the way up to 16 milligrams per hour. And, I mean, this isn't really helping anything, but it looks exactly like propofol. So just want to make sure that it's during handoff that the nurses or whoever you're handing off to know it, exactly what it is and that it's not propofol and stuff as well. And then some direct vasodilators <clears throat> that we could use interoperatively, hydralazine, nitroglycerin, or nitroprusside. So hydralazine, it is a direct-acting vasodilator that is particularly useful for patients with bradycardia. And so <clears throat> you can kind of get some reflex, not necessarily tachycardia, but just some reflex increase in their heart rate and stuff sometimes when you give hydralazine. So it's highly selective for arterial with little effect on the venous circulations and it's administered as a bolus which may be repeated every five minutes. And then one kind of downside of this, it does have a little bit of a slower onset compared to other antihypertensive medicines that we kind of mentioned earlier like the esmolol, clovidipine, labetalol. <coughs> uh, next, nitroglycerin. So it's a vasodilator that causes increased release of nitric oxide which ultimately is going to inhibit calcium entry into the cell, resulting in smooth muscle relaxation. And it can be administered as a bolus or infusion. And lastly, nitroprusside. You know, I think uh, my three years of clinical anesthesia training, I've only used this once, but it is a nitrovasodilator that directly releases nitric oxide causing arteriolar dilation. And then this is once again a common board question, but the big disadvantage here is that with continuous infusion with nitroprusside, you get a cyanide accumulation or whatnot. So it's kind of why it's fallen out of favor. And then with the new medication clovidipine that or nicardipine, I mean, they both cause arteriolar dilation as well, so kind of less need for the nitroprusside just because of that disadvantage associated with it. So that's kind of pretty much what I got. So, it, you know, whenever you come across intraoperative hypertension and it's pretty much guaranteed you're going to throughout your career, the most important thing they're going to be to do is identify the underlying cause and treat it appropriate, appropriately. So, you know, quick rundown. So if, you know, light anesthesia, obviously you want to increase your anesthetic, whether that's inhalational or if you're giving a TIVA intravenous, you know, give a bolus of medication, go up on your rate. If it's inhalational, increase your flows and just turn up your gas or whatnot. And so, you know, there's always that fine line, you know, if you give too much, you could always cause hypotension, but so you just kind of want to treat it the best you can accordingly. You know, if it's pain, surgical stimulation, you know, you have opioids that you can use, IV Tylenol, if that's fine to use at your institution. 
uh, if they're hypoxic, you know, you want to want to figure out why they're hypoxic. You know, they have a pneumothorax or they're atelectasis. You just want to want to treat that accordingly and make sure they're increasing their saturation O2 stores. If they're hypercarbic, you're probably going to need to increase your minute ventilation. And then, you know, like some rare causes, like maybe bladder distension, you know, after you've gone through all these other reasons about why, then if for some reason they do have a catheter, then you want to make make sure that that catheter isn't kinked. Or if it was atrogenic and you accidentally did something as uh, human mistakes are prone to, then you want to treat that to get them back within their baseline, you know, within 20% of their preoperative map and then maybe you label your medications a little bit better but hopefully that helps and then whenever you come across hypertension intraoperatively kind of gives you a little at least a baseline to start with hey everyone thanks so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this podcast if you have ideas for future podcasts please reach out to us via email at learn on the go at uky.edu Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.